0: Well, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read the section to you one last time uh, before we move on to chapter 6. And I'm also excited to get to chapter 6, talking about the ministry of reconciliation between believers. Uh, Galatians certainly is not the only chapter that addresses that. So we'll look at a more complete theology of it in the Scriptures and, and hopefully equip all of us to be... Uh, more prepared um, to unite Christians back together when there's been sin, and um, it's a good thing. But for now, today, let's let's try to finish up our chapter, this last section of chapter five. Paul says, "I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things." That you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. My back on. Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires we live in the Spirit. Let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray. Well, Lord Jesus, we we love you. And we thank you for your word. And Lord, I, I'm also thankful that you you know our frame, as David said, that that we are dust. And this this chasm between the between man and the things of the Spirit is so massive sometimes. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us the ability to understand your word and, Lord, that you would give us grace so that we might receive its instruction and live according to it. Lord, we thank you that you're patient with us. and We thank you that we have the promise that as you had begun a good work in us on the day of salvation, that day by day, by your grace, you're going to complete it. And then we're going to see you, Lord. So thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, please be seated. It's good to see you guys. All right, well, uh, some more context here, or just a reminder of it. Uh, you know, Paul's discussion about walking in the Spirit has followed on the heels Uh, concerning his warnings against legalism, uh, these Judaizers that had come to town. And they were poisoning the water of pure theology, if you will, the doctrines of salvation and sanctification. And the legalists had said that you need to keep the law in order to be holy. Uh, If you are to please God, you'll have to keep these rules, these regulations. It's the only way uh, to not live according to the desires of the sin nature. It's the only way to be pleasing to God. But Paul says, no, law-keeping will never achieve those results. In fact, the law, he says, will hinder your spiritual progress by provoking and strengthening the sin nature. With the law, he says, comes all manner of evil desire. He says in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 that, that the law imposed... Uh, strengthens sin in us. And so the question arises if keeping the laws of no value to our spirituality, no value to the believer, how then do we live for God? How do we do this thing called Christianity? Well, the only way to be holy and the only way to avoid walking in the flesh, Paul says, is to keep in step, if you will, with the Holy Spirit, to walk in his power. Paul says, only then will you not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Verse 16, you can try to use the law. And the Galatians were attempting it. Uh, some of the people in Rome were attempting it. Uh, but Paul says that's not only, uh, not only will that not happen, but that's not the intent that God had for the law. Romans chapter 3, uh, 19 and 20. The, the answer uh, is a life submitted to the Holy Spirit, which Paul is saying then yields the attributes of, and the characteristics of Jesus. As Paul says, walking in the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit. So through our submission to Him, He causes us to exude the qualities of the Son of God. And it's interesting, if you look at the life of the Son of God uh, and Jesus' own evaluation of His life, He says, I do all those things that please my Father. So the more that you become like Jesus through the Spirit's power, the more your life will be well-pleasing to the Father. Okay. As we, we said last week, it, it is actually love that is the fruit of the Spirit. And then love has its chief characteristics, which Paul says are joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. We, we've already looked at joy and peace, so I want to move on to patience uh, or long-suffering. It all depends on which translation that you have. And, and again, I want, it to, I want to at least say that my intent is to not sound like a dictionary or a Greek lexicon. Uh, but if we don't understand the words in their historical context and then in their biblical context, uh, we might interpret them according to what our culture says. And uh, that just will not end well for us. So let's talk about long suffering, uh, what it is not, and then what it is. So, this particular Greek word, uh, like you care that it's makrothumia, uh, and and I probably have butchered the pronunciation of that word, but anyway, it is what it is, which we have translated, at least here in this text, as long-suffering or patience, it doesn't really concern our relationship with things or circumstances. It's not about our relationship or experience with Things or circumstances. The Holy Spirit is not here concerned with uh, how we conduct ourselves when we wait for the train. Now He does care, but not by the use of this word. It's not about how you um, you know engage with a red light uh, when you're in in a hurry. Uh, it doesn't refer to your attitude when you're dealing with a difficult computer because you've never done that before anyway, or when you're trying to fix a leaky faucet that won't seal. I hate plumbing. But I love plumbing at the same time. And, but we would say that it's certainly a virtue to be patient in circumstances, that are, uh, especially those that are out of our control. But that's not what Paul is getting at here. Patience in regard to uh, circumstances is actually the, the Greek word hupomone, which we translate as endurance, endurance, especially when it comes to persecution and um, our children, politics, and things like that different word for another context but the word that Paul uses uh, the Holy Spirit is concerned with our relationship with other people okay our tolerance of them in the midst of conflict with them okay conflict with them so here Paul is talking about the nature of love which is not provoked by the way it is treated one of the things that I uh, try to communicate to my children in discipleship is no one else is responsible for your reaction. No one else is to blame for the way that you've acted. Okay? If you say, why did you do that? It's sad, but even adults say, because, not because I'm sinful and I reacted sinfully, but it's because of them, right? It's because of them. It's their fault. It's their fault. Paul says, no. Uh, That's not the nature of love. It's not provoked by the way it's treated. So patience is attributed to the person who has the ability to avenge themselves, but refrains from doing so. Patience tolerates wrong done to it. It tolerates. Patience can take a hit. It can absorb an insult and criticism. It can do that. Love doesn't lash out or take revenge. The opposite attribute to long-suffering is a work of the flesh. It's an outburst of wrath, verse 20. It's to lash out. It's to take vengeance of some sort. That's what the flesh just does. It hits back. It, it's, it's all about insult for insult. It's blow for blow. The flesh doesn't like to let things lie. Have you noticed? Or maybe uh, you don't react to the person that has offended you, criticized you, but you stew You can't think about anything else, you can't sleep at night. That's not long-suffering, just because you don't lash out at the person if you stew on the inside. Because on the inside, you're still lashing out at them passively, right? It's still blow for blow. It's still, I wish I had said, I wish I had done this in response. And it's not, oh, I wish I had loved them in response. I wish I had demonstrated patience in response. No, it's wish I had just put them in their place, as a response. Because we're really tough inside the recesses of our mind, right? We're really tough, yeah. Also, uh, this uh, chief characteristic of love conceals a multitude of sins. A multitude of sins, the scriptures say. But the flesh wants to expose every offense, wants to get even. Uh, This word, for example, it's used in a number of ways in the New Testament. And, uh, and as always, as we've said, we want to see the biblical use of it, to see how the Holy Spirit uses it in a particular context. That's our interest. So when God is called long-suffering in the Scriptures, or patient, it refers to him delaying his righteous judgment of sinners. Romans 2.4 and 9.22, many other examples. Uh, an example of that in, in, the his, in history Is that in Genesis 15, you remember God is speaking to Abraham and saying, the promise of the land is still to you and your children, uh, but the iniquity of the Amorites, same as the Canaanites, is not yet complete. That is, I'm still being tolerant of them. It was another 400 and some years before God annihilated these wicked people. That's endurance. He was patiently Waiting, He was wanting them to turn from their sin to repent, but they did not. And so we have the conquest of Joshua, uh, cleansing the land of these evil people. But God is also said to be patient as he waits for sinners to repent and be saved. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.16 and 2 Peter 3.9 and 15. Uh, we know that God is patient because he saves people on their deathbeds all the time. I mean, the thief on the cross, he was cutting it close. And Jesus spoke to him and then rescued him, saved by the bell. James, he exhorts us to be patient with the Lord as we wait for his coming. Now, I don't think I've ever wanted the Lord to come so badly as I do right now. But Jesus, in his parables, he says, as you wait for the Lord, uh, don't. Uh, don't get impatient and get drunk and beat your servants, okay? Um, as an illustration. <laughs> James 5 eight. Paul exhorts Timothy to be patient with the people he is pastoring. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. I don't know why he said it to Timothy, if, if there was a specific context. You know, it, it could be that they were despising him because of his youth. Okay, Timothy was probably 35, um, it could be that there was problems in Ephesus with uh, believers being crazy like they were in 1 Corinthians. Um, I don't know. I'm sure there's some context there. Paul frequently exhorts believers to be long-suffering with each other. Uh, we've noticed that that has to be practiced from time to time as differences arise among us. And believers are told to be patient toward those who persecute them. James chapter 5, verse 10. So if... Patience can endure suffering, criticism, and the rest, and not reciprocate hostility. That's what James is talking about in persecution. Now, I believe in self-defense, but I think we have to be careful in the way that we define that and make sure that we're learning from the scriptures in self-defense. Okay? Oftentimes, it's best to take a hit. And I don't like being hit, but that's another story. So, like God, we should be patient as we wait for his justice against evil. That It's becoming harder, but we should be patient. Like God, we should be patiently waiting for people to repent and be saved. As God is patient with us, we should be patient with others. Like the apostles, we should eagerly wait for, and as Paul says, be loving Christ appearing with patience. And then like the early church and the persecuted believers throughout history, history of the world, we should endure persecution as the world increasingly hates us and resists the things of the faith. So if it is loving for God to exercise patience toward the ungodly, it is godly for us to do the same. If it is a loving example, or rather it is a loving example to our children and others in the faith as they watch us tolerate ungodly people. If our children have no patience, perhaps they have no example of it. We love seeing our flaws come out in our kids. And then patience also mimics Jesus, who suffered patiently under persecution. He did not revile others. He didn't lose his temper. He didn't lash out. But he took it like a man, like a man. So this particular virtue, like peace, it gives place to wrath, meaning that it waits for the vengeance of God, who is the righteous judge. We quoted this in the context of peace, but Paul said, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, 9. We need to wait for him to take care of it. Okay. Wait for him. So in the majority of contexts, Christians are told to endure mistreatment, to wait it out patiently. I think one of the most troubling examples of the exhortation to be patient is Paul told the Corinthians that they, de- they basically need to grow up. They basically need to grow up and accept wrong done to them. And then he says, And to allow themselves to be cheated even by other believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Allow yourself to be cheated. Grow up and tolerate it. Boy, Paul could really say it, couldn't he? He's saying we can be too quick to point out an offense or cry out when we've been mistreated. Now, there are certainly appropriate times to address injustice and wrong, but it's not all the time. Uh, an interesting study of the Scriptures is the study of human rights. Have you ever looked through the Scriptures to see what your human rights are? Okay. I'm not talking about those granted by governments, but the ones granted by God. <laughs> what rights have, has God actually given to man I think it's nice to have rights, but just because you have them does not mean that you need to insist upon them at every violation. It's okay to be violated. Patience with people in many instances, I think, will win the day and prove to be more effective witness than just demanding our rights. You guys get it. Yeah. And by the way, in the Scriptures, it's much more virtuous to defend others than to defend ourselves. Solomon said, open your mouth, judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Proverbs 31, 9, learn to do good, Isaiah said, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead for the widow. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17. A chief characteristic of love is patience. What about kindness, or uh, your, your translation might say gentleness? Now, there are two interesting examples of this word, he used of God's kindness. Listen to this in Titus chapter three verse four. Paul says that it was a demonstration of God's kindness to send His Son into the world to save us, not because we were righteous, but because He is merciful. It was an act of kindness. And then in Ephesians two seven, Paul says that in the ages to come, speaking of eternity, God is looking forward to lavishing His kindness upon everyone who is in Christ Jesus. So kindness in this regard is not something that's earned. It's extended purely because of the character of the one who bestows it. So love extends a blind sort of kindness that is impartial. So for example, God who is love, Jesus said, causes his Son to shine. I like it, it's possessive, it's his Son, Causes his Son to shine on the righteous and the wicked. He's causing that. Even the wicked, that's why Washington still gets a little sunshine. <laughs> Not because we deserve it, but because God is kind. Matthew 5:45. <laughs> "The Lord is good to all," the psalmist says, and his tender mercies are over all of His works. Psalm 145:9. So therefore, kindness should be extended to everyone, from us, just as God does. And then there's goodness, a goodness certainly an outworking of love, and it's generated by the Holy Spirit. This virtue follows on the, the, the heels of kindness, but it's adding a greater level of action to it. The Greek concept of kindness is often presented as more of a disposition, while goodness is the action that flows from it. So perhaps we could say that kindness is is in the heart, or kindness in the heart rather, is moved to action when occasion arises or it falls into its lap. But goodness goes looking for ways to be benevolent and charitable. It looks for occasions to lavish its goodness on someone. It's a little different. Now, the differences I, I wouldn't say are entirely concrete, but goodness certainly implies more action. And an important example of this is in Second Thessalonians 1.11, where Paul prayed that the believers in Thessalonica would glorify God by acts of goodness. Why is that important? It's because of the context in which the Thessalonians found themselves. They lived in a community that had become extremely hostile toward believers. That's to whom Paul says that. Be active in lavishing goodness on people, and you know, Paul understood our natural tendency to either, you know, reciprocate hostility or withdraw from it completely. But Paul is saying to them, if you want to glorify God, if you want to be agents of his goodness, you're going to have to engage those who hate you. And you're going to have to show them goodness. That's different, isn't it? Because it's really easy to be good to those who are good to us. But Paul says, I want you to find those that hate you. And I want you to be good to them. Yeah, we need to do that especially as we see ideologies in America that are becoming more hostile toward Christianity. And we need to show love to them, Paul would say. We don't want to reciprocate hostility because it won't win them. And withdrawing from them is not effective. Now, if there's physical danger, I think that, I don't think, I know that there are occasions when Jesus says, you have the right under God to flee from that, and he did on occasion, but not always. Paul, on occasion, fled to another city, but there are times when he took a beating. Okay, he uh, decided, probably through prayer and, and, and godly wisdom and discretion, uh, when he should do which, but it's not always time to run. Sometimes it's time to take a hit. So be creative, be wise, and do what you can to share God's goodness with others. And then there's faithfulness. He said, love is faithful. Now, the word does not mean or imply belief belief. And the the Marines have a good understanding of the concept from the Latin, who is a Marine in here? One? What's going on here? How many Air Force? (laughs) (laughs) How many Navy? Ron's outside, raised in his hand. How many Army? Oh. All right. Oh yeah, I forgot to raise my hand. (laughs) What's the, the, the motto of the Marines? Semperfi. That's it's abbreviated for Semper Fidelis. Uh, always faithful, always loyal, always dependable, always reliable. Okay, that's what Paul means by love is faithful. Okay, it's loyal. Uh, we see this stated very clearly as a product of the Spirit's love in 2 Timothy 2.13. Paul says this: He says, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Paul is not saying that if we stop believing, God will continue believing. That's not what he's saying. Paul's saying that if we stop being loyal to God, God will remain loyal to us. And God remains loyal, he says, because he is reliable by nature. It's not within the realm of possibility for him to be disloyal to those he has committed loyalty to. Aren't you glad? Yeah, he's always there to scrape us up off the floor in our disloyalty. Okay. So when the Spirit's character is manifest in us, it will produce greater loyalty to God and to others. Okay. It's an important virtue in friendship and marriage, in our commitment to God and His Word. So that's the fruit of the Spirit, some of them. Let's move on to verse 23, gentleness, even meekness. Okay. It, now, this one is more difficult. Uh, it's, its antonym is probably cruelty. Probably cruelty, the opposite. And so where cruelty might be considered appropriate treatment of an evil enemy, gentleness would restrain itself and instead temper the treatment. And not to the removal of justice, not to the exclusion of rebuke, but to the restraining of unnecessary wrath. You see, because an outburst of wrath uh, is not under the control of the spirit. And so an outburst of wrath typically goes way beyond what is appropriate an appropriate response and justice. So for example, when Jesus went into the temple on two different occasions, as we mentioned earlier, it says he was consumed by zeal for his father's house. So what he did in a premeditative um, way it wasn't an outburst of wrath where he was uncontrolled, but he, he sat well, he gathered up whips or he gathered up cords, and then he sat down and he wove a whip out of them. That's premeditated, right? Okay, that's thinking the whole thing through. And after he had made that whip of cords, he then began to drive the money changers out of the the temple and those who sold doves and, and the ridiculous prices and things like that. So a question for you, when Jesus did all of that, did he stop being meek? No, no, he didn't. Jesus actually doesn't have the ability To suspend one of his attributes in order to employ another one. He can't do that. His nature uh, just won't allow him to do that, okay? Uh, We can, of course, because we're broken. Jesus continued to be me because he was mighty, protecting his father's house from corruption. I I think that this virtue is essential to parents uh, who are dealing with obstinate or unruly children, because gentleness tempers a response it doesn't avoid discipline or training it removes wrath and it makes parenting more effective yeah then there's self-control who likes that the the word appears just a few times in the new testament i think there's a really interesting place for it paul used it in evangelism not to evangelize mind you he was doing it he was evangelizing felix when he was in prison in caesarea And he's confronting Felix for his lack of self-control. And then he's calling him to repentance because of it. You know, Felix was an unbeliever who was sexually unprincipled and immoral in his dealings. So Paul gets after him about it and reminds him of the judgment to come. And Paul, as a prisoner, got to observe Felix tremble. I like that, when the unbeliever trembles in light of reality. In 1 Corinthians 9.25, Paul refers to how believers are competing for an imperishable crown, a crown that God awards those who live for him. But he brings a comparison here. He says, like an athlete who disciplines himself in order to compete in the Olympic Games, the believer, he says, must live a disciplined life, restraining his carnal appetites and giving himself to the higher virtues as he yields to the Holy Spirit. A believer by the Holy Spirit must be taking charge of his body and its appetites. And so the, the opposite is true. The believer who's controlled by the appetites of his body, Paul would say they are living by the flesh. They're carnal. Paul also uses the word in the context of controlling one's sexual appetites, 1 Corinthians 7, 19, or 7.9. Even that is possible by the power of the Spirit. Okay? The body can be spared of deviant passions that instead can be used for righteousness. And I would say that in this age of visual technology that's available to us on nearly every device, the need for self-control has never been so essential, okay? Never. Our bodies, our appetites must be under the control of the spirit. And then Paul concludes in verse 23 with, against such there is no law, okay? Now, there certainly is no law against these virtues, but sadly, there is really no law against the vices listed before them. Now, there are some degrees within them where it is, but in our culture, most of the works of the flesh, especially the sexual sins, are considered virtuous, and the purity of love has been defiled. It's redefined. When, When we as the church talk about sexual purity and loyalty, we are... Ridiculed, and when we rebuke the world's sexual depravity, we're flagged as a self-righteous bigot. So what is happening is virtue is vice, and vice is virtue. Now God uh, has warned the world about that, saying, Woe to those who say evil is good, and good is evil, Isaiah 5.20. But then Peter, he, he encouraged us, he reminded us, not to be surprised when the world thinks it's strange, when we do not follow along with them in their flood of immorality, 1 Peter 4.4. But I think that things are changing. Today, the world isn't just thinking that we're weird or strange. Uh, They're seeing us more as a threat, which is provoking hostility. I actually wonder if the time is coming when a number of Christian virtues will be illegal because it's, it's not just in step with popular culture. It's actually contrary to it. And right now, if you're contrary to anything that is mainstream, uh, you're being punished for it in some, in some fashion. And you look back in the last hundred years, but you know it, it became illegal to protect innocent life in the Holocaust, to protect the Jews, just as it's now illegal to protect life in the womb. It's the same thing. We look at it differently as a culture, but God views it the same. So our, our world is quickly turning inside out, But who in their right mind wants to perish with the world when Christ has promised us life and pleasure forevermore in His presence? Yeah, looking beyond this. Verse 24, Paul says, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now we've already been in Romans 6, and it's the concepts in the first few verses that Paul is talking about, where through faith, uh, he says we're crucified, we die with Christ, which resulted in the toppling of government, that is, the government of sin over our lives. Our death with Christ ended that relationship with sin, and it's freed us, not from its presence, but from its power. And then, as we yield to the Holy Spirit, we experience victory over sin. Uh, Greek scholar Kenneth Wiest, he, he says this. He says, this victory over sin, which the Lord Jesus procured for us at the cross, he says, is made actual and operative in our lives as we yield to the Holy Spirit and trust Him for that victory. Our death with Christ makes all of that possible. But it doesn't become a reality for us until we find our lives in step with the Holy Spirit, empowered by Him. In verse 25, Paul says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, real quick, in the original language, the word if... He says, if we live in the spirit, that is a, what we call a fulfilled condition, which assumes that the act of living in the spirit is occurring. Okay, it's not a true condition. Uh, if you do this, then this will happen. Uh, I try to explain this to my son recently. Uh, if you're on your way out the door to the grocery store, you say, Hey, I'm going to the grocery store. And then I say to you, hey, if you're going to the grocery store, would you pick up some milk? What I mean is, since you're going to the grocery store, or because you're going to the grocery store, would you pick up some milk? Okay, now in the Greek, it's very clear. Uh, It's just not easy sometimes to translate. But I've seen some translations of late that are translating it, I think, correctly for the English reader. So it should say, since or because we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Do you understand? Since you are walking in the Spirit, we are walking in the Spirit, Are living rather, let us walk. That's what Paul's original audience understood. So therefore, these Galatians, they lived in the Spirit, which means that the Holy Spirit dwelt within them. They were saved. They were born again. Now, because the Holy Spirit dwelt in them, Paul says that they had both the potential now to walk in the Spirit's power and... They had the moral obligation to walk in the Spirit's power. Not only can you, can us, but we should. We should. We belong to God, and we should live as it pleases Him. Verse 26. Interesting way to end the chapter. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So real quick, what is conceit? provocation and envy, and how do they arise in the body of Christ? Now, conceit, to be conceit, to be conceited, rather, is to consider yourself worthy of honor. Now, that's not what the conceited person says. That's just what they think deep in their heart, is they are worthy of honor. So this happens, I think, in the body, when, when some Christians within the body, uh, they're well-versed in the Scriptures, they, they're good at apologetics, They know their theology, and then they often begin over time to see themselves as a cut above the rest. Knowledge that's not tempered by the Spirit, Solomon would agree that it puffs up. Amen? It puffs up. Now, understanding your Bible and have a working knowledge of theology and being able to engage in apologetics, are those virtues? Yeah, but how many times have you watched a debate between a Christian and unbeliever, where you are embarrassed to be associated with the believer because he's so arrogant, he's so obnoxious, he's so condescending. You get it? But then you watch another debate where the Christian is exuding the fruit of the Spirit while he, you know, destroys the arguments of the ungodly. There's a difference. The one is conceited the other one is humble. people that are conceited should not be allowed in a teaching capacity or leadership. Other Christians, because they're good at one thing or another, uh, you know, they're, they're good at leading worship, or their kids are super well-behaved, or their Sunday school class is the largest, or whatever, they can get puffed up by their success, forgetting that God's grace is to be credited for all spiritual success. All of it. Okay. These people need to be brought into check before they corrupt others. Yeah, pastors and elders are often guilty of conceit, thinking they're worthy of honor. But according to Jesus and Peter, shepherds are to consider themselves the servants of the flock and not to be thinking of themselves worthy of honor. They need to be reminded of their place. You remember Jesus warned his apostles about this attitude. He said, you know how the Gentiles, they take their authority and they they lord it over other people. He says, this shall not be so among you, but the greatest among you shall be the servant of all. And then Jesus, by his example, he says, even the Son of Man, notice that language, even the Son of Man, the, the High King of Heaven, who is worthy of angels worshiping him, he says he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. What pastor deserves better than Jesus? Amen. Yeah, so Christ has gifted people in various ways to be a blessing to his church. But we have to remember that we are not the blessing. We are not God's gift to humanity. Yeah. So provoke. Uh, this is actually the only time the word is used in the New Testament, but it means to challenge. It means to call someone on. Bring it on. That's kind of the idea there. Okay? But this person is irritating. <laughs> this is the person who challenges everything that is taught, every decision that is made. Uh, they're a nuisance. They're a pain. Now, we have to make sure that we don't confuse this person with two other kinds of people, okay? They're not to be confused with the young Christian who's looking for clarity, right? Okay, and they're not to be confused for the person who addresses an error that is worthy of pointing out. And we invite these kinds of people. Uh, We welcome inquiry and, and godly correction, but the person who's always challenging every little thing is exhausting, and you're pulling, uh, especially leadership, away from people that actually have real needs, okay? So if you become that person, I will tell you graciously, okay? Let's just text, all right? That way I can answer you when, <laughs> <Never> mind. <laughs> Paul says, don't be that person, okay? Now we've already talked about envy. Oh, by the way, if you are that person, I hope you know that you're that person, so just knock it off, okay? And if I do that to you, it's a two-way street. Tell me to be nice to me, okay, because I'm sensitive. But at least tell me. Tell me. We said that envy, uh, it's probably not as bad as jealousy, but it's really not much different. So jealousy, envy, this is the ungodly feeling you get when someone has something or gets something that you think you deserve, you should have, whether it be possession, praise, or benefit. Um, This is the person that is upset over other people's happiness. It's a sad place to be. So anyway, if you add these three lovely characteristics together, you know, conceit, provocation, envy, you have one dysfunctional church family, don't you? Each of the members are seeking honor for themselves, uh, angry when others get it, and are always bickering with one another over the minor details. Who wants to go to that church? No hands. What a surprise. So let's not be that church, amen? (laughs) The body of Christ just can't thrive when the members within it are conceited. If they're always pushing each other, envying one another. You remember Jesus, and it was in the context of, of, you know, if if even Satan allows division within his own kingdom and house, it'll not stand. But he presents that in a general sense. Every house that is divided against itself will fall. It'll crumble. But when the members are walking in the spirit, mutual love seasons all that we do. Harmony rules, as Paul says it should in Colossians chapter 3, and then God is glorified. That is Christ's intent for his church. Now, I, I need to close, get you out of here, but I want to close the chapter this way. Walking in the spirit and, you know, becoming as God would have us be, I think many of us, because we fail, we get up, we fail, we get up, we, we get into a... we just get frustrated. And we think, is this even possible? Is there, is there any progress at all? Well, when we look at the scriptures, this whole doctrine, if you will, this theology, is always addressed as a process. It's never addressed as something that happens. You know, you get in the lotus position, you contemplate your navel long enough, hard enough, and then boom you have arrived, you walk in the Spirit. Or if you, if you, you know, like Star Wars, if you can just concentrate enough, you can use the force to your advantage. thinking that the Holy Spirit can be used by us, and He never will be used by us, okay? He's Lord God Almighty, we're to be used by Him. And, and what happens over time as we humble ourselves, as we seek His face, as we're intentional about going to Him in submission, that's that's when his fruit is more and more born in us. It's something that happens day by day as we yield. So do not allow sin and failure to discourage you. The scriptures would say, repent, get up, and move forward. Trust the Lord. And the more you trust him, the more you'll experience his fruit. You guys get it? Nobody's gonna arrive here in the flesh. You're gonna have to wait till you see Jesus. But he is faithful. He started the work. He's going to complete it. Okay? Now it's for us to encourage, to be patient with, with the rest of us as we are trying to figure this whole thing out. Amen? Well, then stand up and we'll pray. So be reading ahead, Galatians chapter 6, especially that first little section. And um, you can also read things like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians chapter 5, all these great text about how to work toward reconciliation in the body when there's sin, when there's disagreement. And um, yeah, it glorifies God to be unified. All right. Well, Lord Jesus, we love you. And again, Lord, we, we need your grace, Lord, not just to receive the instruction. We, we need your grace to live it out. So Lord, help us to to be humble, to recognize where we're not walking in the spirit, to know when we're not walking in the spirit. And then as David said, lead us in the way everlasting. Empower us to live in such a way that you're glorified. And Lord, only by your spirit are we gonna be useful for your glory. So help us, Lord, we pray. Lord, I thank you for my church family. And I just pray that collectively, Lord, we could encourage one another that we might move closer to you, as Paul says, to the perfect man. In Jesus' name. Amen.